Welcome back to Women in Politics, the podcast. As always, I'm Tessa Spencer. I'm Caitlin Maker. And I'm Sonia Coffin. Last week, we discussed Washington, D.C. statehood and ballot collection. Go listen to that episode for some background on those topics. Today, we'll be wrapping up our HR1 miniseries by talking about federal money going to campaigns and Election Tuesday being a national holiday. First up, should federal money go to campaigns? So for some background, HR1 would provide federal money for campaigns in two separate ways. First, the Freedom Fluence Fund would create public matching funds for qualifying congressional and presidential candidates at a rate of 6 to 1. This section sends taxpayer dollars to boost political can- candidates. For every $200 sent to congressional or pre- presidential campaign, the federal government would match up to $1,200. Second, HR1 also establishes the My Voice Voucher Pallet Program a new program that grants some voters a $25 check from the government to donate to any congressional candidate of their choosing. The program would begin in 2028 election cycle and would be voluntary. Candidates would opt in by meeting donation qualifications and would be subject to certain contribution limits. The program would be funded by a new 4.275% surcharge on criminal and civil penalties and settlements that corporations pay to the U.S. government. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated this week that the new revenue stream would generate about $3.2 billion over 10 years. So with some of the background on what federal money to campaigns looks like, Caitlin, what are your thoughts on this? Well, first off, I just would like to address the fact that we are already $28 trillion in debt. Um, And so if there was this new revenue stream coming in of $3.2 billion over 10 years, I think it would be a lot more uh, fiscally responsible to put that towards the debt rather than financing campaigns. Um, And then um, the second issue I take with this whole measure is that there has already been dollar matching systems for campaigns at the state level, including Arizona and New York. Um, And this system was just really taken advantage of and candidates were able to siphon thousands of dollars from public match funds and put it towards things that I guess could have been considered under the guise of a campaign, but weren't actually for campaigning purposes. The Arizona um, congressional candidate um, ended up stealing nearly $100,000 from the public match funds and used it towards nightclubs, vehicle rentals, and restaurants. Um, And so my concern with this is that if it was on the national level, there would be, I mean, exponentially more candidates that would fall under this public match funds that this money would be going towards um, things that we wouldn't be able to know because there's just, it would just be such an overreaching program. Um, And so if so many things went wrong at the state level, I don't see why it would work at the national level. The FEC does a pretty good job of watching over everything on the national level. So I feel like if we do match the funds, it would be better at a nation level than a state level, at least in this situation, which is weird for me. But um, I could definitely see the FEC working with it to stop that corruption. Yeah, I agree with Sonia. I think kind of on the opposite view of Caitlin that – um, making this on a national level could actually propose more standards that won't allow this, like, siphoning of money and this, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars getting, like, put towards the wrong use. I think that those things would be decreased if we had, like, a system that was 
very clearly watching over what these funds were going towards and what candidates were going towards and it was a system that was had clear standards and a clear process and it wasn't just state by state doing whatever they want with their program so i agree with sonia i think if there was an overview of all of it that it would be more secure that way i guess it makes sense i just have a very negative view of the government and anytime they put their fingers in something i feel like it just gets messed up so that could also come from that but i guess something i have a question for you tessa is what are the benefits of this program like can you lay out some of the specific things that by matching public funds um, how it would make elections better, campaigns better, just like what are the positives? So one of the main positives that I found while, you know, doing some research about the different funds and reading over this uh, this bill is that it is can possibly help shift election funds away from PACs and big corporations by creating a small donation matching system that goes through a public system like me and Sonia were just mentioning um, and that the influence of PACs and big corporations that right now have so much power in our elections, in, and in my opinion, it's too high of a power, um, that it can start shifting away from that, and that Democrats proposing this bill needs, like, it will help to shift those funds away from PACs into the public. And I think that having the public's voice and opinion more in campaign and campaign funds can help the election process be more democratic, which as I've already said in this podcast many times, I am for more democracy, unlike maybe Caitlin or Sonia. Uh, Democrats and Tessa say that the power of the super PACs is the main reason for the Freedom from Influence Fund and the My Voice, My Voucher program. But I feel like if that was the concern here, it would seem to me that it would make more sense to limit super PACs as opposed to adding additional power to congressional candidates. Uh, Personally, I wouldn't support any limitations on super PACs, and I know that it would be a long process to shift the president precedent of Citizens United v. FEC, but when there's an issue of a specific group having too much power, then giving another specific group too much power, too, is not the right decision. I agree with Sonia on that. Uh, I do agree to some extent with Sonia that it, about limiting the power of PACs and how you said it would be a very long process, and I think because of that long process that this Freedom Influence Fund could be a possible stepping stone and that's why I support it um, because I see it more as a way to help start the shift that we need to see in elections away from PACs. So that's my personal view on it. I think that in theory, this whole idea sounds really good of taking power away from the super PACs, but I just don't feel like in practice it's a very practical thing because I mean, the super PACs are already so powerful within campaigns that they will find a way to retain their power, even if we have this in place. And so I feel like it's just going to uh, create essentially a new power struggle where the super PACs will probably still come out on top. My personal opinion here is that 
we just accept super PACs for what they're worth and use them to our advantage. Uh, when talking about these two programs, Nancy Pelosi said that uh, they will allow the United States to elect many more women, many more people of color, and many more young people into elective office. But super PACs are often used to get those three groups elected in the first yeah. place. As opposed to villainizing super PACs here, congressional leaders should accept the positives that can come from super PACs in electing women, people of color, and young people. Um, I will say that if PACs are helping to elect those people, that that could be a positive to super PACs, but I still believe that the power that super PACs hold in election is too high and that we should be shifting more to the power being in the public. But I also want to bring up that, like, one of the things that I found to be good about this was instead of just, like, it being that um, there the, this fund could help elect more women, people of color, and it's also helping just more women and people of color and people that aren't in, like, super high places in society get involved in the politics more than just them being elected but it's like both sides I want to see that and I'm for any proposals that help those things become a reality. I think that at the end of the day though like I mean pragmatically speaking how many Americans are actually going to donate money into this to be matched? I mean if you're not already donating to, donating to campaigns I just don't foresee a lot of Americans being like oh yeah now I'll start donating because there will be public match funds. I don't know. Right. I just feel like... So the, yeah. so the donors that are already donating exactly. are going to keep on donating. Exactly. It is also worth noting that even though in 86% of elections, the candidate that raises the most money wins the election, spending does not necessarily cause that win. I believe that winning brings money, not that money brings winning. Uh, donors are pulled toward the candidate that they feel like has the best chance of winning that election. So with a six to one dollar match and donation vouchers, money is still going to go toward the candidate, which these donors feel yeah. like that has the best chance of winning that election. So it just seems like a waste to me. And I think going off of that, too, um, while I think that we could benefit from having more women and other minority groups in office, at the end of the day, I don't really think that it matters Um what gender you are, what color you are, what you look like, as long as you're the most qualified candidate to be in that position will be the best thing for our country at the end of the day. And so kind of going back to what you said, if a donor feels like a certain candidate is the best for the job, they're going to donate to them and not to minority groups or women or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about the Freedom Influence Fund and more of uh, the public system getting funds into do uh, to campaigns. But what are your guys' thoughts specifically on like the My Voucher, My Voice program that gives the uh, the possibility for voters to have a tw give $25 to a campaign? I'm not a fan of that at all. Uh, it just seems unnecessary. This money's going toward an election that can end up being a lost election as opposed to something that can actually impact the United States. There's just 
so many better ways to spend this $25. And in big congressional races, $25, even if you have a multitude of donors giving $25, it's still not much of an yeah, impact. Um, just to counter that, I do want to say, like, this type of program was first seen in Seattle in 2017, and the research, the preliminary research from the program showed that it brought in the city's donor base to include more women, people of color, and non-wealthy residents, which is something we've kind of just mentioned. Um, but I want to say that even if it, this $25 might not seem like it has an actual huge impact on the candidate, I think giving people that might not be able to donate because they are making it paycheck to paycheck just to get food on the table, but want to be involved in the election process and feel like they are doing something for the candidates that they believe in, that a voucher or like something like this where they can give $25 to a campaign that they're so passionate about could be very helpful in getting people to become more passionate about the election process and to feel like they are more involved in the democratic process of elections and voting and all that stuff. So for me, the voucher is more important in the sense of getting, giving people more of a voice and giving people more of a say in elections rather than actual how much it's going to help the candidates. So I think it's a, just a good stepping stone for these people who might not be able to usually donate to campaigns. If these people already have the passion in politics, they just want to get more invested, then I feel like the best choice is to volunteer with that Absolutely, campaign, that's what I was get say. on doors for a few hours, make calls to voters. That's going to have a much bigger impact yeah. than a $25 check from the government. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like too, if it's a check from the government that you get to pick the candidate go it goes to, it's not even your own money. Like, it's not something that you have worked hard to donate to. It's a handout from the government to give to someone else. If you truly feel that passionate, like Sonia said, you will want to invest your own time and your own um, resources, whether that be knocking on doors, making phone calls, or whatever that might be to that candidate. Um, and going back to that, too, um, what you talked about in Seattle, while it might have worked on the city level, I just... Anytime you expand it, I just feel like that ushers in a boatload more problems. Um, and so to take it from a single city to the entire country, I just feel like would usher in a lot of problems. And it would be a lot of wasted $25 checks going into the hands of people that could probably care less. They just like the idea of $25 from the government. So I don't completely disagree with Sonia and Caitlin about it. There's probably other things that they could do to get involved and like show that they're interested. And I think that those things are great and volunteering could be so, you know, helpful to these people that want to get involved in the campaigns that they're passionate about. I just also think that this is a good stepping stone for people. There's obviously flaws in both these programs because it's a proposed bill. No bill is perfect, but I just think these two campaign fund proposals could help to get more of the public involved in elections and less of the super PACs and corporations because in my opinion the super PACs and corporations having such a high influence is you know very corrupt in elections and I want to see it more of a public system so those are some of my final thoughts on the campaign funds coming from the government um do you Caitlin Sonia do you either have any final thoughts that you want to Put out there to the world your your final piece 
I worked on a campaign where a super PAC spent a million dollars against us and we still got elected. So I, super PACs have an insane amount of power right now, but w the candidates still have more power at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, just at my, my core, having more government funded programs in any area of our lives is just a terrible idea in my opinion. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Caitlin, you're pessimistic view of the government <laughs> what can uh, i say <laughs> um so moving on i our next topic that i want to dive into for this episode is should election tuesday be a holiday um in section 1909 of hr1 uh it would make Election Tuesday a legal public holiday, and the holiday would take place every two years on Election Day, the Tuesday next after the first Monday in November of every even-numbered year. So it would be a, an election holiday for the general elections, not the... Uh, primaries. The primaries, yes. Well, I... At this point, you know, why don't we just make every election a holiday? I mean, that's what I think it could lead to. But more than that, um, a, according to a um, Berkeley Public Policy Journal, uh, the editor noted that this will potentially hurt um, hourly wage earners more than anything else by making Election Tuesday a national holiday. Low income and blue collar workers would be the ones that suffer because um, they would still have to work on Election Tuesdays as a result of it being a federal holiday. Um, and since these workers will have to go to work and their children will be home from school because um, it's a federal holiday, it would put them, um, they would need to find childcare for a day, which would hurt them more. Um, and overall, these typically are the people that have less of a voice within our political system. And so if the goal is to give some of these lower income and blue collar workers more of a voice, I don't think that this would be the way to go because they will still have to work. They'll have to find childcare. They'll have to pay for that. Um, and I just think it would put an additional strain on those who already have a harder time getting to the vote. Um, it really just seems like HR1 provides a ton of mediocre ways to increase voter turnout as opposed to just having one solid plan to increase turnout. Mm -hmm. If we assume that America's election system is currently broken, then HR1 would just be adding band-aids to a break that needs actual mending. Um, making election day a legal holiday is a clear example of this. Well, I can see how HR1, because of just how long it is and how many different proposals there are could seem like it is just trying to put band-aids over cracks that need a bigger fixing. I think that really what the bill is doing and what it's doing in my eyes is creating stepping stones to create systems that are truly going to help it, but creating those systems that are going to completely fix this pretty broken election system or the election system to be what we think it should be in a perfect world is very difficult. And so I think that HR1 and the many things that it proposes are used, can be used as very good stepping stones to what the election system needs to look like. And I think that this election holiday one, while it might seem like a small, insignificant one, could actually be a very significant help in creating voter turnout that we want to see. 
Yeah, Sonia, what? Just like so many other aspects of HR1, Election Day would increase voter turnout. But is that increase worth the disadvantage that low-income and blue-collar workers will face? Is that increase in voter turnout worth changing state laws that already effectively give employees time off on Election Day? I don't think so. Yeah, to add to that, um, the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, which are some of the largest federations of unions in the U.S., did state that there's already 30 states that require employers to allow um, their employees time off for voting. And so they seem to just be adding to the length of the bill with this um, proposal rather than, like you said, actually getting to the root cause of the issue. And to kind of go with what you said, Tessa, I don't think that it's a bill's job to create stepping stones. It's, it's the bill should be in place to actually fix problems um, instead of just putting in more government regulations. What do you have to say, Sonia? You talked about states adding laws, and I actually think that that would be a good alternative yes. here. Um, I think it's more effective to add a federal law that would parallel something like Arizona's as opposed to adding an entire fair. Uh, holiday here. Yeah. Arizona allows employees who do not have three consecutive hours before or after work when the polls are open to take paid time off to vote at the start or end of their work days. In addition to not taking away a day of income from those who need it, this would actually benefit voter turnout more since it's making sure that these voters are getting out to the polls instead of, oh, hey, you have a day off of work, now go sit at home all day, you know? Yeah, I think that that's what it would turn into. So I think kind of on that idea of having states create laws or create a federal law even of paid leave, um, many times throughout this podcast we've had issues that might seem very black and white, and this is definitely an issue that could seem black and white should there be a holiday, should there not be a holiday. And But I think there's also a lot of gray area of how, gray area of how we can fix it and how mm-hmm. we can like make sure that people who want to vote can vote and I think like we have before there we've seen that we can come to like compromises and I do think that that like having a federal law that can make it so that there's paid leave for Mm -hmm. workers is definitely a compromise that if both sides could come to an agreement on could be really helpful to voters um and while that compromise would be great it hasn't happened on a federal level yet so while this bill has passed in the House, I just want to say kind of some of my benefits of why mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. this bill could be good for election turnout. Um, so I think on this podcast about a million times, I've said that the most important thing um, to me is voter turnout and enabling more citizens to participate in the democratic process that is the election and making sure as many people's voices can be heard as possible. I probably sound like a broken record at that point, at this point with how many times I've said that. Um, and the presidential presidential election is one of the most important elements of our democracy. And I believe that all el- eligible voters should be able to vote and have their voice heard. So making an election day a holiday would help to ensure that workers could still have the opportunity to vote. And so that's one of the benefits. Um, Caitlin, did you have something to add or yeah. go against, maybe? <laughs> I was just going to say, I feel like this idea of making Election Tuesday um, is almost a moot issue in this bill because they push mail-in voting so much. And mm-hmm. so why are we making someone have another federal holiday um, and giving 
kids a day off from school, people just another day off from work when mail-in voting is such a big deal and they can literally just mail their vote in. So it just seems like a very contradictory issue within this bill. Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to bring up with is, you know, Republicans are very much against mail-in voting and early voting. So if Republicans are so against these two things, then making Election Day a holiday so that more people can get and vote on Election Day in person, I think should be a top priority for Republicans because it would be allowing people to vote when and how Republicans view they should vote. So I'm... I guess I'm kind of confused why that wouldn't be a priority for Republicans, if either of you have any thoughts on that. First, not all Republicans hate absentee ballots. I vote absentee every single election. Shout out to absentee voting. And also, um, as far as Republicans hating the idea of Election Day being a holiday, uh, Pew Research Centers showed that 59% of Republicans support it and 71% of Democrats support it. So you can see that Election Day is a pretty popular idea, but it's just in this context that makes it so different when there's so many flaws that need to be fixed to our election system before we can make Election Day a holiday. So in a different context, I'd definitely be a fan of Election Day being a holiday, but right now is not the time and place. Yeah, and I don't think it's so much that Republicans just despise mail-in voting. They just despise very poorly secured mail-in voting. If it was like the Oklahoma system, I think that a lot more Republicans would be um, on board with that idea. Um, and just to kind of echo what Sonia said, it's really, this is just to me seems like something else that they just threw in there to try to push through with this almost 800 page bill. Um, if this was truly, if each of the parts of HR1 um, were just so near and dear to Democrats' hearts, they would have one took time to put them in separate bills and um, actually really broken it down um, advertised not advertised but like talked about it more and and it wasn't just oh you know this is in the middle of a 700 page bill that no one's going to read and nobody knows what's in it it's just going to get voted on so I feel like if election Tuesday was so important or just any part of HR1 it would have been given the time to be its own bill so I think with I think kind of the final thoughts that Caitlin and Sonia just had and a lot of thoughts and opinions that we've shared throughout the three-episode mini-series about HR1 and honestly a lot of the more controversial parts of HR1. We've seen how three people with three different ideas of how elections should work, how this bill should work, what should be passed, what shouldn't. We've all been able to come to like bipartisan uh, compromises, in my opinion, Absolutely. that really could help. And so I'm really glad that on this podcast, we got to dive in deeper to HR1 and see yes. how vastly different we think about it, but in the end, how we could come into some compromises and agreements and really look at each other's sides in a different light. So on that note, that wraps up our HR1 mini-series, and Sonia has some thoughts about our plans for after the this series is over. Alrighty, so me and Caitlin are going to be graduating this Friday, so we don't know an exact plan. Uh, Women in Politics started out as a class project for us. We were just going to crank out the HR1 mini-series and then be done with it. But we've all become super passionate about it over these past few weeks. So we're definitely yes. going to discuss options of 
how we're going to continue women in politics, even when we're not all in class together. So definitely follow at women.and.politics on Instagram. So you'll be the first person to know what we decide on for where women in politics is going next. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks for whopping on Wednesdays with us. <laughs> yes, thank you for tuning in on our discussion on HR1 and just listening to us to ramble on and argue for a little while for a class project and we hope that we can continue this and that you guys come back and listen to some of our future projects so thanks everyone thank you thank you